Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Kenneth Froelich on the show. Kenneth is a professor of music composition at California State University, Fresno. Froelich's music has been performed in over a dozen nations, including the United States, Canada, China, and throughout Europe and South America. He received his doctorate and master's degree from Indiana University and a Bachelor of Music, summa cum laude, from the University of Southern California. Just a few short months ago, Kenneth's premiere of his composition Melt was performed by the Fresno Philharmonic, which we'll cover in detail in this podcast. Beyond that, we cover things like Star Trek, board games, music education, and more. I know you'll enjoy this conversation, so let's go meet Kenneth Froelich. Fresno's best. Uh, so, Ken, where do you like to eat in Fresno? So, one of my favorite restaurants is in downtown, Liba Lula. I think it's a just outstanding place. Uh, but, uh, you know, we tend to go to places in the Tower District. Uh, so, things like CDT Cocina, which Casa de Tamales, as we know it. Um, Quesa de Aguria is another one that we like to go to. You know, my wife um, can't really have gluten, so we have to kind of pick and choose the places that we can go to that we know that uh, she can eat there. But those are a few places we really like to go to. You know, so a couple comments. One, Libelula um, is so underrated in town um, because it is so, they do so many things well. And I, I just don't know if that place the placement's weird or something like it feels like where it is kind of like backed up to the almost the 99 just kind of makes it to where people don't go there as much as they maybe should given how good it is because i That's, love it every for lunch or breakfast like i will go either what do, what do you like to order there oh when i'm there i usually what do i like to i often just try something new every time because everything there is so good but the well, what about lunch, lunch versus breakfast are you go one way or the other I actually, I, am, I, I go both ways. I, yeah. I like both. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, it's, well, I, I, I'm always trying something new. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, moving to the Fresno area from a bigger city. Um, one thing that, you know, I missed is there's bigger cities just really emphasize brunch. They really do. There's so many brunch spots, quote unquote, where you get this kind of mixture of breakfast and lunch, but not like heavy breakfast, like you know, kind of your Denny's Grand Slam situation, but more of kind of like upscale brunch. And so that place does it. And I think I, I wish they were, I honestly wish they had a bigger space that was maybe a little bit more comfortable um, because it is kind of small in there. And once it gets hot, you know, you don't want to sit outside as much, but uh, it is a wonderful place. Um, and gluten-free is interesting. I recently, not I'm not gluten-free, but I was trying to I, I don't know, eat less bread recently. And I've been getting these Siete chips and tortillas and things. I don't yeah, know we know those it. well. Yeah, yeah. the almond flour tortillas blew my mind. I had those last <laughs> night and I was just like, this is fabulous. I didn't but, know you could do this. Do you want to know what's really terrible though is my wife can't have gluten and I can't have almonds. What? What do you even uh, yeah, do? So, that, so, well, cassava. Cassava is a really good thing. You uh, know, call it, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of different uh, products out there. Rice flour is always good and things like that. But yeah, the when yeah, I've a I get like a his, like a hive reaction to almonds at this point. So it's wow. kind of like we have to pick and choose. 
So you're basically allergic to Fresno County is what you're saying, you know, if possibly you're allergic to almonds, you know, it's like you just go anywhere. You're surrounded by them. This is a hostile place for you. Um, yeah, no, I, I, is cassava flower. Is that because I don't even is that a yucca plant or what is that? I don't even know what that is. I've seen it advertised so much and I have no clue because, you know, sometimes you like to know what you're eating, I guess. And I when I saw it, I was just like, I'm not sure what that is. I'm not 100 percent sure on this, so. So if I'm wrong, you feel free to, to tell me I'm wrong, but I believe it's the same plant as tapioca. Oh, and so okay. I think it's related. And uh, so that I think is where it's coming from. Interesting. Well, I, you know, I didn't invite you on to talk about uh, cassava, believe it or not, but to talk Good, about music. Not very <laughs> and, you know, I, I've talked to a few different people about music. And when I talked with, uh, uh, Ray Hotoda, as well as Rong Hui, we tended to start with kind of music education because, um, you know, whenever whenever I'm thinking about uh, music, um, it you know, children come to mind because, you know, music education is used to be more built into schools, less so now. It still is a part of education, um, but it also kind of taps into biography and where you come from. Um, and so I want to start there, if that's okay, um, and okay. talk a little bit about your uh, your music education. Um, and I'm a teacher and I always like to start with teachers, um, because, you know, they have a big impact on us and particularly musicians, you know, you have mentors, uh, that, that kind of guide you. Um, so in, when you think back to your music education, are there certain teachers that stood out and why did they? So there are several teachers that stand out, but I think I really have to go pretty much all the way back to when I was in high school myself. And I can talk about two teachers. Mm -hmm. One of them was my high school band director, Arnie Christensen. He was uh, the band director for the San Diego School of Creative Performing Arts for many, many years. And we all called him Mr. C or just C because uh, that's how uh, we referred to him, how he wanted us to refer to him. And he was just one of the most supportive mentors that a young musician could ever have really believed in asking students to kind of pull out more from what they do and uh, you know just one of the leading mentors he's really the person who helped kind of formulate my ideas about trying to become a composer rather than just playing in our bands as a saxophone player and gave me the idea and the idea to start writing for our high school band that was only half the equation, though, because the other part of this was my private saxophone instructor, uh, saxophonist Joe Morello, and he was uh, kind of an icon in the San Diego jazz community, and he taught me not just about how to play um, saxophone, in many ways he taught me how to live and breathe and speak music. From basically sixth grade on, I was learning improvisation, and he would play the piano, I would play saxophone over his piano and that's what would be our lessons and we just learn how to improvise and so he was really teaching me how to speak the language so in a way and by the time i was 13 years old he would have me kind of tag along to gigs that he would have in uh, downtown san diego and i would be playing saxophone alongside him and try to hang on try to hang on as best i could so the two of them really really started to formulate how i would learn to become eventually a composer and then once i got to college i studied with amazing amazing composers i had a chance to study with morton lordson at usc frank de kelly at usc um then over at indiana university i studied with don freund with uh claude baker sven david sandstrom these were all such huge influences 
on my compositional output and I kind of just approached this like a sponge. I just wanted to learn and learn more and figure out what I can do so that way I could eventually figure out how to survive and thrive as a composer myself. And so each teacher that I had a chance to study with ultimately imparted a little bit more knowledge and I feel like I'm kind of like a, a conglomerate of all those little ideas over time. That makes a lot of sense and I, I there's probably some kind of uh, differences that you could point out between uh, high school education, which, you know, you're still very formative, you're growing up, and then when you start to learn from, uh, you know, adults as an adult, um, and how, how taking all that in, uh, are there certain things that you took that you then implemented as an educator from, from the teachers you had? So with every teacher that I studied with, I kind of took a little bit of the knowledge, a little bit of what I learned from my lessons, and I've kind of turned it around and thought about how that would then impart the lessons that I now give as a professor to my own students. Don Freund, I mentioned, one of my professors at Indiana, was a real, real strong pedagogue himself, and he had a very systematic approach towards his lessons. He had very specific ways of thinking about um, the spectrum of keys is how he put it when talking about kind of the way that we want to build a scale. And so some of his lessons, I then turn around and I impart those to my students. From orchestration with Claude Baker, Claude Baker was a, is a master orchestrator. And so, so much of what I learned in orchestration, how I approach writing for a large ensemble, thinking about everything I put in it, that's from him. And that comes into the language of the orchestra and how I then impart that again into my uh, lessons. Sven David Sandstrom passed away, unfortunately, a couple years ago, but uh, he had such an amazing ability to distill creative thought in music down to the essential idea of what is it that you're trying to say and really take the big picture and say, this is how you're going to make that happen. So, you know, really kind of a big picture guy in many ways, but an effective communicator as well. And so, it's kind of like, again, a little bit of each of these professors ultimately kind of coming into my own knowledge, which develops my own pedagogy. From there, though, there's a lot more that I've developed on my own over time as well, especially from just my own experiences. So while what I learned as a student really started to develop the foundation of my pedagogy, the experiences that I have had and continue to have as a professional composer and just in my lessons themselves continue to constantly refine this process. So it's never done. It's never set in stone. I feel like every year goes by and I'm a different teacher, a different pedagogue than I was a year before. And it, that just continues to, to change. Yeah. And as good educators know, if you're not, you know, if you're not moving, you're dying, you know, like you need to constantly be enhancing uh, what you do. And does that mean we're sharks? I don't know. <laughs> professionally develop. Um, and, I, you know, when you now looking at your lens through kind of uh, the work you do at Fresno State, uh, when you get music students that enroll in your program and you start working with them, are there certain things that they come to college with that you wish they had more of in high school? Are there certain things um, that you wish high school um, or, you know, if thinking about parents and they're preparing their kids to pursue music, um, are there certain things you wish your students came to school with when they started at Fresno State? I really wish that 
every high school student, I'm talking to every student, not just the ones who study music, not just the ones who think that they're going to become music majors, not even the ones that think they're going to become music composition majors, but literally every student, I want to have the experience of writing music. There's this misconception that writing music is somehow this art that only certain people can attain, that only quote unquote geniuses are capable of writing music. And I just think that that's complete hogwash. Writing music can be done by anyone. You know, we every person, regardless of whether they want to study art or not, has drawn a doodle. Every person has written a poem. Every person has, you know, done various different kind of sculpture ideas. But when it comes to writing music, it seems that this is something that very few students actually do. And I think by demystifying what composition is, it's just it's a practice. It's an, it's something that you sit down and you do just like any other creative activity. I think mm -hmm. that would also elevate what students ex own expectation of what they can do in this. So I, I just want pe more people writing, period, and writing you, that music. Sorry to interrupt, but do you no. feel like that is kind of this, uh, this kind of culture that's uh, emerging around, uh, you know, uh, kids feeling like they have to do everything right? You know, like we, we talk about like the college, like, uh, the, there's admission scandals where, you know, and then all these intense students that are like, I have to have the 5.0 with all of the <laughs> extra cookies. They have to follow everything to a T, uh, but then that limits their creativity. Is that what you're saying? Kind of? Oh, oh absolutely. Uh, the, there is a problem where a lot of people, I mean, this isn't just students, this is everyone really. We don't know how to do something badly and enjoy it. Mm. You know, the idea that we just do something and enjoy it. It doesn't matter if we're good at it or not. You just do it. You know, yes. there is a, there's a real pleasure to doing something bad <laughs> and just saying, you know what? I'm enjoying myself. So so what Matt, what does it matter if it's good or not? And that's not to say that what someone would do is even bad or not. But I think you're right. There's this problem that if we feel like we can't do it well, we shouldn't do it at all. And that's that's just wrong. Mm -hmm. Just do it, enjoy it, and don't don't critique the work right away because you feel like somehow this is inferior work. We all have to start somewhere. You do it enough, you'll get better at it. But really, it's about the enjoyment of what you're doing because the purpose of this is not just to you know develop a skill, but also to enjoy the craft itself. Yeah. Well, and I you know I'm I'm reading this very large biography of Sylvia Plath right now. And there is sections of the book that talk about her early poetry and the author, or the, the biographer kind of talks about it as juvenilia, you know, like she's experimenting with poetry and form um, and she's not in her mature stage yet. And it feels like some students feel like they should jump straight from nothing to the mature form. But I, I, I don't know how, I don't know how you can master something without failing at it a few times it, it, it seems like that's impossible um even the, but, even the master composers right you know early mozart maybe is uh, can come across as infantile in some ways because he's a kid making this but stuff. how often do you hear that people say oh but mozart was a genius right yeah and you know he he came out of the womb composing right and it's kind yes. of like it that creates the, the wrong message it sends mm -hmm. up this mystique that somehow these great composers these master composers are are put on a plateau that's unattainable yeah. and we, we have to tear that down and we start by stop referring to people as geniuses in these fields you know mm -hmm. there are works by Igor Stravinsky who you know by all 
by all accounts, Igor Stravinsky is an amazing composer, but there are bad pieces by him. Mm-hmm. All right. There are bad string quartets by Haydn. I, I, there are good ones. There are bad ones. It's okay. Yeah. They don't all have to be masterpieces and we don't have to put them on a pedestal to somehow feel like they're worth being performed. Yeah. And that's a complicated one for, for people. Cause I mean, you know, what you're encouraging people to do is take a risk. And with this, you know, kind of in the music world, given the, like the uh, amount of, or the limited number of jobs these days, you know, people feel afraid, I think too, like there's this scarcity complex people have. And I, you know, it's, it's a complicated one. I just hope that more people want to try because we need new Mozarts. We don't need to just have just Mozart. We need new Mozarts. Well, and uh, it is true that in, when you, if you're just thinking about this as a profession, I mean, certainly it's a difficult profession to succeed in, but you can't succeed at all if you don't start trying in the first place. Absolutely. Let's talk about uh, the relationship between jazz and classical music. Um, so for you, those are those are mixed. They're things that interact with each other and speak to each other. I think they're they're interesting to me because they have very different histories in some ways. You know, the emergence of classical music, but also the emergence of jazz and thinking uh, that you know religion is tied to both. But um, the ways that they sit in our society are very different. So, how do you, um, in your experience and in your work, view the relationship between these two genres? I feel like the intersection between these two genres is is very, very distinct, actually, in part because of their histories that, you know, when you think of jazz as a purely American form where it's originated out of the 19th century in the United States, um, classical music was very much a European art at that time. And the idea of classical composers in the United States, there were composers operating in the United States, but they were composing primarily in a European style. And the uh, irony being that the European composers of that time didn't even want to look at an American composer. It was like the idea that they were just kind of uh, replicating the work that they were doing. So these really were operating on two different planes until you get in kind of the middle of the 20th century. And as jazz continued to develop, and you started to see more and more kind of um, an acceptance of jazz within popular culture, you also started to see classical composers incorporating jazz ideas into their music. Um, Gunther Schuller was one of the first composers who kind of coined this term third stream, which is the idea of trying to combine classical and jazz together into its own art form. Now, he wasn't saying he was composing classical music with jazz influences. He was saying he was composing a brand new kind of idea, this third stream, as he put it. But ultimately, a lot of what he composed was kind of thought of in the classical realm. Conversely, you can also look at a composer like Dave Brubeck, who, you know, is obviously influenced by very strong classical traditions, although his compositions are jazz and he is composing you know these jazz works which have the idea you know blue rondo a la turk well rondo right there in the name Mm -hmm. of it influencing the classical music form so these kind of intersections start to show up not so much because they're becoming the same kind of art form that never is the case but that they're they're cross-pollinating each other intentionally as a result of the efforts of certain composers wanting to bring one into the other and so that's really where we start to see that kind of develop and you know, this is something which is part of my own language because, as I mentioned, I, I started my music path as a saxophone player. I was playing jazz all through my high school years. And then I went on and I studied composition from a primarily classical standpoint. And so even though 
I have this jazz background, I'm now learning about traditional counterpoint, traditional orchestration, the ideas of 20th and 21st century music techniques, yet the jazz vocabulary always stays a part of me because that's just ingrained in my own being. And so you see all those lines and those ideas kind of coming out. So that's kind of another way that it's now manifesting in my own music. And I think it manifests honestly in a lot of composers today because of the fact that we all have such diverse backgrounds as we're coming into the craft. Yeah, and I think one of the things that people use to differentiate the genres is improvisation. Um, that the idea that maybe you improvise when you're composing, uh, but when, when the piece is finished, it's kind of this static thing, whereas jazz is fluid and changing. But that we know that's not true. Oh, no. Um, There's tons of improvisation in classical music. Anytime you see a composition today that has something in a box that says, play these notes in any order you choose, <laughs> you see that in all sorts of classical compositions today. And there are jazz pieces which are completely fixed that don't really have room for an improvised solo, but the, 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 it's in there, the, mm -hmm. the style. Yeah. Well, and I, I think, too, I mean, for a lot of people, the conductor is kind of the improviser of the piece oftentimes, right? There, And, you know, there was jazz conductors, right? If we think about, uh, what's his name? Uh, the famous famous uh, big band from the 40s, you know, um, I can't remember. But um, there is someone directing the improvisation. Maybe that's part of the distinction as well. Um, but how um, I... I wanted to talk about this because I wanted to hit at the uh, fluidity of boundaries um, and how things are not distinct and how for you in thinking about your compositions, how those things bleed into uh, what you do. So I think when it comes to, you know, if we're defining the different kind of elements and how they kind of bleed into each other, I think a large amount of it comes down to rhythm because when I'm looking at a lot of jazz kind of components, you know, as a saxophone player, the rhythmic language that we would play in the big band was relatively complex when you boil it down. A lot of very fast moving runs, a lot of syncopations, a lot of these kind of movement, which you typically don't associate with classical literature. Those rhythms, though, are a part of what ultimately comes into a lot of my music, for better or for worse, because it can also make the music very, very challenging. And there's kind of like this inflection, this, this way that we perform jazz, which emphasizes different portions of the beat, you know, that a classical musician typically won't do. Classical music typically wants to play things pretty much as it's written on the page. That's how they're trained. And that's where sometimes the the distinction between the rhythmic language starts to get a little tricky, trying to communicate the way that you want to play a line as a jazz articulation, as a jazz rhythm in a classical language. There's also harmonic language when we're talking about things like extended chords, the rich vocabulary that goes beyond just a standard triad that shows up in a lot of my language. And those are different elements. But you mentioned improvisation and the, the use of the solo. That actually is one thing which I don't necessarily bring a lot of into my own compositions, that I'm really thinking of it more from the written out procedure. Um, I will use what we call aleatoric elements, which is kind of like these written out improvisations in classical work where you know performers will kind of improvise a certain element, but it's not the same as a jazz solo per se. And it's not broken down structurally the way you would assume, you know, a jazz composition is where you play the head, 
and then you have a bunch of solos. Maybe you trade some fours, have the head again, and then you go out. In classical structure, a lot of it's just more written out. And that tends to be what I do in my own music as well. And going back to Mozart, and the only reason, you know, Mozart is talked about a lot, but, you know, the reason why I'm not talking about him right now, because I just finished this huge, wonderful biography by Jan Swafford, who's one of my favorite biographers about Mozart that came out two years ago. And I was fascinated in the early sections when he's a kid and going around with his father, uh, Leopold, and they're going to these different dukes and duchesses house. And one of the things that he did that set him apart from his sister, who was a better clavier player, uh, was that he improvised. Uh, they would tell him to do something and he would improvise on the piano. Yep. And that's what made him uh, famous, essentially, is the improvisation. And so that's why I was kind of asking in the back of my head, I was like, this is something that I saw. Um, but I, you know, I, I don't know if I see as much in, in modern classical music. And that's maybe something that we can talk about. But let's let's transition uh, to a section I call overrated versus underrated. I'm going to throw a bunch of things at you. Uh, they're going to be people, pieces, TV shows, board games, um, and you just tell me whether you think they're over or underrated. Um, so we'll start That's with good. an easy one. Um, Star Trek Voyager, over or underrated? Overrated. Why? Star Trek Deep Space Nine is the best Star Trek of that entire period, bar none, and Voyager was a sh just a just a hollow show in so many ways. Was it the like writing? The what is it? What 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 made it uh, def deficient for you? Oh, it was the partly the writing, and also it just seemed like it never could figure out what it wanted to be. The producers were basically rebooting it almost every two seasons because it was subject to ratings so much. It was, you know, if you remember UPN, that was the network it premiered on. It was UPN's flagship series, and its ratings weren't doing so great. And so they had to basically keep redefining what the show was in order to maintain their ratings and when things started to flag they're like no we want to do this instead so this is the show about discovery no it's a show about action no you know and and they couldn't figure it out and the show suffered as a result of it so uh, i i know this because i know just regular ordinary people and in some ways star wars has won the cultural uh, debate between star trek and star wars um, what would be your best persuasive argument to encourage someone that's a star wars person to experiment with star trek i'm not sure i would you and the would. reason for that is because i think they're completely different genres Mm. You know, we've, we have this debate, but sometimes I really think it's just because they both have star in the name. Mm. <laughs> Ultimately, Star Wars is fantasy and it's good fantasy. I really enjoy it. Star Trek is rooted, though, in our own culture as an extension of our planet and, you know, a future that we could potentially attain if we really wanted to. You know, it's a utopian vision, certainly. And I think that was part of Gene Roddenberry's vision was to attain that kind of, you know, ideal that he wanted. Star Wars literally says very first thing in a galaxy, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So immediately it's completely disassociated from anything that we are a part of. Mm -hmm. And I think they're both great. I really enjoy both for very, very different reasons. And so I don't think it's necessarily one thing that we have to do in apples and oranges. So I, I don't want to make that comparison. I know people do all the time, but I, I look at it and go, I don't think you need to. Mm. Well, I read this uh, fascinating book about this exact topic um, called, uh, it's by a famous legal scholar of, of 
of all people uh, called The World According to Star Wars. Uh, the, the writer is Cass Sunstein, who worked in the Obama administration in the kind of uh, reform or compliance section. Anyway, and so he basically just makes the argument uh, or explains why culturally we've attached ourselves so much to Star Wars. Um, but I, I think you're right. I think I'm one of those people that just took the star, the space elements of them and just kind of combine them. But in the same way that I wouldn't combine um, the sci-fi of Isaac Asimov with uh, someone like Ursula Gwynn, for example, I wouldn't just say, oh, these are the same thing. I think I did that with Star Trek and Star Wars. So maybe I'm falling into this. <laughs> well, no, but psychotomy. everyone does. And I, I mean, the, the other thing that they have in common is the time period, because really, I mean, these were the two kind of competing kind of, if you will, science fiction. Although, again, I, I still stand by the idea that Star Wars is fantasy. But, you know, at that time period, that's really were the two big franchises. And so I think it was a natural comparison. But that's one that I don't think we have to do anymore. Okay, next one. Uh, the board game Settlers of Catan, over or underrated? I'm going to get in trouble for this one. I, I think it's overrated. Um, having said that, I really appreciate it for um, how it introduces people to the hobby. It's mm -hmm. a great, you know, I mean, it's been out there for a couple decades now. It's a huge, huge impact on the board game hobby. I've just played it to death. Yeah. <laughs> like many people have. And I think... I, I, I mean, I describe it as like a gateway drug, right? Like it's, yep. it's what gets you into more serious strategic board games. Um, so if someone like yourself has played it to death, what would you recommend as, a, as the next drug, you know, for them after uh, Settlers of Catan? So I, I think I would definitely encourage people to check out Ticket to Ride. I think okay. Ticket to Ride is, uh, you know, had, there's a lot of very, uh, yeah, I can spot. A lot of variety, <laughs> mm -hmm. getting tongue-tied here, yeah. a lot of variety of different maps that are available. So you can try out different ways of approaching uh, the game. If you're looking for something which is maybe a little less known, but still really kind of accessible in that, um, a game that has been really popular recently is one called Cascadia. And mm -hmm. I think Cascadia is just an outstanding introductory game that involves kind of tile placement and basically trying to place animals on various kind of biomes if you will to match them with these cards that are saying the each animal will score a different way it's not that difficult to explain but there's so much variety in different ways that the puzzle can unfold and so it's a really great introductory game okay all right next one um so we're talking we're going to talk more about contemporary classical music in a second uh but uh the next one i have for you is thomas addis's the tempest the opera I don't know if I would call it either over or underrated. Properly I think rated. it's probably properly rated. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was, you know, a really, really adventurous composition um, upon its arrival and also ridiculously difficult. You know, <laughs> I think that, uh, you know, I had a chance of actually seeing the kind of, not the premiere of the opera, but it was a concert setting of a couple of the arias that the LA Philharmonic uh, did. And, Thomas Addis was in fact conducting this and I was listening to what the soprano was doing and the virtuosity on display was just shocking. I, I, I could not believe what she was doing and what he was asking her to do because it was just so, so incredible. And the thing about it is that 
I think this is a known factor about the piece. I think everyone who refer talks about the Tempest knows it is just this ridiculously difficult. And so, um, you know, it is a highly regarded work, but it's also criticized for that reason. Mm. And do you feel like the movement in opera right now, um, in these kind of more more complex, there isn't, I, I, I mean, I, I try to stay abreast of like, you know, what what are some of the trends in opera? And it doesn't feel like, these kind of like big, like, uh, you know, Verde or like Mozart with these big melodic pieces and kind of really tasteful music, I guess is the way you could describe it. Uh, there's a lot more experimentation with melody and like, you know, uh, discordant sounds and stuff. And so I, I, do you think that's counterproductive for keeping opera as a main part of our classical music culture? Not necessarily. Okay. Why? I think it because I think ultimately what matters in an opera is that it's communicating what is actually happening in the story itself. That you actually have a narrative to speak of, and that the music in any opera really has a role of basically serving the libretto, serving the communication, and making sure that there's something that an audience really is engaged with. I think more often than not, what really can make an opera fall kind of apart is that there's just not enough space and time to really digest what's happening and that I think it's less a function of the harmonic language and more structure that too often there's just too much happening that it becomes impossible to really understand what's going on and that's why I think you can really lose an audience mm -hmm. but you know I think there are, are great examples of Wozzeck by Alban Berg mm -hmm. is one of the pinnacles of 20th century opera occurred early in the century, mind you, but it is an incredibly challenging work from a musical kind of language perspective, but it's paced so incredibly well. It's structured in a way that really lets people digest it and understand it, and it's haunting in its message. And so those things, I think, help communicate, despite the fact that the language itself might be, you know, very discordant, strident, you know, atonal. Yeah. Well, I've, I've really, um, in, during COVID, I've really enjoyed just the kind of a uh, couple times a month, I follow this YouTube channel called Opera Vision. And it they, they post like three or four operas a month on YouTube uh, that are produced across Europe. And it's really been cool to kind of watch and see how operas performed in different countries too. Because I think it, uh, you know, how, how you perform, um, you know, Carmen here, would be different than watching it performed in Rome, for example. <laughs> yes. um, and you know, it's a uh, it's it's a cool culture, and I I wish people um, would kind of brave the waters of getting into it more because I think there's a lot to learn, and there's such beautiful music to to explore that it's it's for me it's harder to listen to uh, opera detached from the theatrical elements of it. It's harder for me, and I don't know why that is. Um, like I, I, I can listen to uh, The Marriage of Figaro on a reel, but, you know, to see it with the performative element is is something that matters to me. And so I, I just hope that. Designed. Yeah. Yeah. And I just hope that there, you know, there continues to be accessible opera for people to get into. All right. Next one. Uh, John Cage's 433, over or underrated? Underrated. Come on, okay. you always have to have his, that one out there all the time. <laughs> okay. Why is that underrated? Um, I think people misinterpret it. I think 
typically when we think of John Cage's 433, all we he says, oh, that's that silence piece. Mm. And, and we misconstrue what the purpose of the composition really was, because, you know, John Cage was always kind of pushing the, the boundaries of, well, what should music even be in the first place? And the score, if you've ever looked, there's a score to music to 433. Really? Did you know in, yeah. Did you know it's in three movements? No clue. <laughs> yeah, it's actually in three separate movements of Tacit. And that's, I think, fascinating to me that, you know, there's elements of this piece that we just kind, kind of take for granted and just assume, oh, it's just it's about a piece about silence. But it's about why is this musical in the first place? Is it the notation on the page that makes it music? Mm. Is it the fact that it's something designed to be listened to that makes it music or not listened to in this case? Is it the sound that's created regardless of what's on the page? Is that what makes it music? Hmm. There's a lot of questions that this postits and it's more than just, it's a piece about silence. Maybe it's a piece about the noise the audience makes while wondering what's going on. Hmm. Do you feel like there are some compositions that are so wedded to their cultural moment that they start to not make sense as they age? Because I'm thinking about this in particular and just thinking about kind of the philosophical movement that comes from where it was in our cultural history and uh, the background to that. And so I, you know, I just wonder, are there certain pieces that are trapped in their time and that have a hard time translating? Oh, always. Yeah, I think absolutely that's going to be the case that we are constantly changing and we're constantly moving forward and we don't always do the best job of kind of capturing the moment and holding it in a bottle and saying, this is how we're going to remember this moment. So, you know, I think a lot of people look at Arnold Schoenberg's Pierre Lunaire and mm -hmm. think this is kind of an archaic composition without really putting it into the context of expressionism and the movement that was coming out of Germany at the time and how that reflects, you know, that art movement as well. So it, it's tough to kind of continue to refer to a composition that is so firmly ingrained in the time, the culture that is present at, at that time. And, and, you know, I think if it's a good piece, though, if there's something musical to say there, irrespective of whether we remember the cultural influence or not, it will still be something which is enjoyed. And I think you can see that in all sorts of examples throughout music history of pieces which have a very specific connotation at the time. Uh, thinking Beethoven Symphony Number no. uh, Three at the time, you know, the Eroica Symphony, mm -hmm. uh, originally composed with you know for Napoleon, right? <laughs> and then that was completely scribbled out after uh, you know Beethoven thought otherwise, but. We don't think about that context anymore, but we could still enjoy the op uh, the the symphony. Yeah, it feels to me like um, when you're playing this music for people, like just doing a good job of you know I don't know whether it's in the program notes, but just really trying to educate so they can see it where it is, but also be open to how the conductor is re rethinking the piece for us. Um, and so, kind of the tension between those things is is great. All right, just a couple more on this overrated, underrated. Uh, John Luther Adams' Become Ocean, over or underrated? Uh, I think it's underrated. Why? I, I think it's an absolutely gorgeous composition, and it does not get nearly enough attention. I mean, obviously, it won a huge award, so of course, that <laughs> definitely put it on the map. But, you know, John Luther Adams is, is interesting. When I was a student, it was kind of always the joke that he was the other John Adams, because, of course, you have John Adams 
one composer. John I should ask you which president. one's better. Who's yeah. the superior Adams? I don't oh, do I'm that. not going there. I'm not going there. I, I, I think they're both great. Mm. I, I really do. But uh, Become Motion's a fabulous composition. It's, again, it's tricky because, you know, a lot of these very long, drawn out, minimalist inspired compositions, uh, this one in particular, the way it unfolds, it's not an easy piece to pull off. And so that's part of why it may not get as pro performed as often. But, you know, it's just like a lot of contemporary music should be out in the spotlight more. And I think in general, um, you know, this is an example of, a, I think, a fairly accessible composition when it comes down to it. And while it's slowly evolving, it's also quite consonant in many ways. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, gives it an appeal. You know, now some people might think of it as more like kind of mood music to some degree, but I think it really has so much texture as it evolves that it deserves an audience to, to hear it over and over again and really experiencing a live audience, frankly. I yeah. have not. I would love to. I would love to, too. And I I don't think it, yeah, I think you're right. I don't think it is mood music because I've tried to put it on in the background while I'm writing or something and I, I just get caught up in the waves, you know, mm -hmm. throughout it and I kind of lose, you know, it's, I, I feel it more as like meditative music that I'm like, I, or con contemplative music while well, you're contemplating like what you're feeling as you're listening. But I would encourage listeners to listen to, he has become desert, become ocean. He's got a, he's got a series of them. Um, I didn't resonate as much with become desert. I, I got the kind of sparse minimalism of the desert in the piece, but it just didn't, it didn't have that heartbeat that become ocean has, but you know, that's a well, I don't think personal taste. But we don't have to like every piece of people to mm. still recognize them as people that we should listen to and understand and follow. Absolutely. You know, this is just their expression. Okay, two more. Uh, Star Trek Enterprise, over or underrated? That's a hard one. I, I would say overrated, but I don't think it's generally rated very highly in the first place. So, okay. So, uh, I, you know, we were talking about Voyager earlier. Um, pretty much everything I said about Voyager could probably double down on Enterprise because it was also, again, really trying to function as a flagship, um, no pun intended, but a flagship program that just really struggled with the network. And uh, it really was never able to find its identity. And that one, it, it really was a disappointment for me because I remember there were moments with Enterprise where I was thinking to myself, is this going to finally be the show I think it could potentially be? Is it going? Oh, no, they did that. Nope, they just completely redefined the show once again. And, you know, they did it with Voyager every two seasons. With Enterprise, they did it every season. It was a redef redefinition. And, and have you been uh, watching the new series? I have. And my the people that are more versed than me have been saying that there's there's a lot that they don't like, but they just have to keep watching. <laughs> you know, and it's funny because I, I'm... Looking at the news, so you're referring to Discovery, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I do enjoy Discovery, despite a lot of the very obvious flaws in the show. And you can see it's it's a show that is maybe a little too upfront with its messaging, which I have absolutely no problem with any of it. It's just a little blunt is all. And I think that sometimes it's kind of like, well, you know, okay, that's fine. Um, the plot's they're fine, but there's just something about that keeps me going and I, I'm entertained by it. And I think ultimately that's what I like about it is I find it entertaining. Mm. Okay. Last one on this section. And I've asked each of the different uh, composers and musicians this. Um, so I'm curious your take. Um, 
the uh, music and film scores of John Williams over underrated? Ooh, probably going to get in a little trouble with this. I'm going to probably have to say it's a little overrated. Okay. Now, I say a little, I'm hedging slightly on this only because I do really enjoy John Williams' music and I think he is quite a master. Mm. But once again, I just, you heard what I just said. I said master. And mm. I come back to this issue of putting composers on pedestals. Mm. And I think that John Williams is frequently put on a pedestal as being something that we mere mortals simply cannot attain. And I just don't think that that's really a good way to look at it. I mean, John Williams is a person. He writes exciting music. He has a huge team of orchestrators supporting what he does. So while the music is really engaging, the orchestrators are also a huge part of that team of making that music happen. You know, there are strong influences from classical canon that you hear in a lot of John Williams's music, but that's not to take away from the creativity that's on display as well. And so I, I respect a lot of what is created by John Williams. I think the music is really, really engaging, but we also have to recognize it as great quality music, but let's not separate it as somehow this art that cannot be achieved. We can all achieve towards that. So let's transition to talking about Melt, um, because I was sitting right center um, in the middle of the back uh, when uh, when the Fresno Phil played that. And I I had different, I had a, I had a varied emotional experience listening to it, um, particularly given <laughs> that I'm a millennial and I'm living through climate change and thinking about these things a lot. Um, but I want to start by kind of talking about uh, preparation for something like this and how you think about, um, you know, doing a thematic piece like this that has a very clear, you know, background to it. Um, what does preparation look like that, like for you in a, in a piece like this? So preparation takes a couple of different facets. Um, I do a lot of sketching before I really sit down and start kind of creating the piece itself. And, you know, so there's a lot of just paper and staff paper, uh, staff paper, pencil, really just sketching out you know structural ideas what is this piece about how is this going to look over the course of time you know what happens at the beginning what happens in the middle what happens at the end those are basic questions right yeah but eventually i get to a point where i go no really what is this piece about mm -hmm. because it's not always the first thing i create in music you know sometimes i'll write a gesture i'll write you know some sounds some colors so I'll, I'll maybe write some chords and I just try to ask myself, what does this conjure? How does this, where does this lend itself? With this piece, I kind of actually started with that opening chord progression that you hear in the first movement. Mm -hmm. And there was an icy quality to it that made me start to think of a glacier. Mm -hmm. And it was from there that the idea of climate change just immediately popped into my head, that that was such a large part of it. And so I really took off from there and started to develop the idea of the, these three different facets of uh, climate change that I wanted to investigate. So that was a requirement before I could really start to sketch individual motives, individual ideas, and really kind of get that spelled out. This, Interesting. Yeah. So can I jump in for a second? Go ahead, um, go ahead. So, cause I, I'm more familiar with the process for writers and some writers uh, like when they're, when they're working on a novel to uh, kind of separate themselves from other writing because they don't want to think about how that's influencing. It, it, how does it work with uh, musicians and composing? Are you kind of trying to compose in a vacuum? Are there certain things that you're consuming as you, as you are creating this piece? Or how does uh, that work? 
I think it's impossible to compose in a vacuum, really. I yeah. think, you know, there's so much of musical language and music history, which is impacting us all the time. So, you know, I am definitely listening to compositions as I'm kind of formulating my ideas and looking at various influences. When I started to think about the glacier melt, I started to listen to La Mer by Debussy, mm -hmm. because, of course, I'm thinking about this idea of the glacier's impact on the oceans. In fact, there's a little bit of a not so much a quotation as just kind of a orchestrational reference towards the end of the first movement that kind of borrows a little bit from La Mer, just of this idea that the glacier is breaking apart and melting into the ocean at that point. And so this is how, I mean, I don't think composers will typically work in a vacuum. We have to build off of the established canon, established ideas, and then kind of recontextualize it to make it our own. You know, Stravinsky, I don't know, we, we often bat this quote around. I sometimes question whether it's a real quote or not, but the, you know, the idea of saying good composers borrow, great composers steal. Mm, yeah. Yep. Heard that one. And I, I, so for you, do you, do you kind of go to other music to kind of prepare your mind or do you, cause it sounded like you kind of had a vision and then you went to uh, composers that kind of shared that vision to find something. And I, you know, the first, the first, and we can talk about the different movements, but the first movement, um, you know, the, the last two or, or, or the middle movement felt to me uh, very human. And then the other two felt just like different forces of nature. And I, you know, it, when you, when the piece starts, um, it just feels clean, sparse, um, like, you know, cause you, you, you talked beforehand. So we were kind of thinking about it as we were listening. And so I, you know, I was trying to just kind of let go of, in some ways of your power of suggestion and just kind of feel what the music was. Um, and when you, so I'm, I'm just rambling now, but um, when you were thinking about what you wanted to say before the piece started, how, how were you thinking about what to share exactly? Realistically, I was mostly just thinking about how the program notes might come out because okay. we, we were working off of a virtual program, that concert, and I wasn't 100% sure how many people were even going to have access to the notes or see them. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. so I was kind of just going from that, really. But, you know. but yeah, these are things that I wanted to communicate, though, because I think it's important to mention that this is the genesis of these kind of three movements, the idea of the glacier melts, the, the personal kind of frustration in the second movement, and then the 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 fires that are, you know, consuming California in the third movement. And so all of those kind of facets, I think, are important to kind of put this into perspective. Is it absolutely required to enjoy the piece? Of course not. And maybe it is the power of suggestion, but that's ultimately what program notes kind of are. Yeah. And I would be curious to for someone to listen kind of blindly and see what they get out. Because I, I do think they would get kind of like the kind of the build and then the psychological um, you know, cause when I was listening to, uh, Montia, right. Is how you say his name. Yeah. Jorge uh, when I was listening to him, I, I was kind of, you know, that kind of, you know, my generations just bouncing terror, hope, lack of hope back and forth, uh, danger, fear, all that stuff, you know, in, in, in his beautiful play, he, I, I was reading, um, uh, your P Monroe's piece about, uh, about Melt, and he had a quote from Montia saying that the music that he was given was pure music. Um, what does that mean? I 
I think you'd have to ask him. I'm not 100. Yeah, sure. no, I was I was curious what your take was that because I was reading through the article and I wasn't sure what he meant. But let's just break it down for everyone. So the first piece um, or the first movement is uh, is this kind of melting glacier, and then the second movement is where you have uh, the kind of the solo, um, and then the third movement is this kind of building, burning, California terror. Um, that's that's what I felt it was. Do you, is that an accurate description of how you see the three movements? Yeah, I, th I think so. I mean, the second movement I, I describe it's it's personal, right? And yeah. so it's again this kind of building of frustration, really against the political forces that uh, don't necessarily recognize or want to, you know, deal, if you will, with uh, the the face what we're dealing with. And so there's just kind of like this expression of frustration is how I put it. And so that one's very personal. But yeah, the first movement's titled White Ice, which, you know, again, that's the glacier reference. Um, second movement's titled Gray Matter, you know, because I like to think of it as my brain melting. Yeah. Um, and then the third, the third movement is uh, Black Steel, which comes from just this image of steel girders kind of, you know, being destroyed and charred as a result of the, for, of the fires. Yeah. And how did you, uh, because there's the kind of the, the bigger orchestra movements, but then there's also uh, Montilla's a specific section uh, that I guess you would call a solo. Um, and how did you, how was composing that different than composing the rest of the piece? Because you were thinking about him as uh, performing it? Yeah, it's a little different because when you're writing just the solo component right there, you know, this cadenza in a way that's yeah. being composed, it, it, it required to really think about the sounds, the different way it would reflect as a connecting piece between um, the two parts of the third movement. And so in the third movement, this connecting material, which basically forms that cadenza, it, in a way, it was composed differently, separately. And I was think, but it, it's structurally a part of the kind of transition from this opening, very dark, underpinning, like, you know, something bad's about to happen section to the spark has been struck and now everything's starting to get consumed. Mm. And so it is functioning like a large transition. Mm. I see. Um, well, and I think my big question is, um, ultimately, uh, wh what did you want people to walk away from this with? I don't know if I really am. Do you think about it place? that way? Is I, that, is I really that... don't. Okay. I, I don't feel like I have that type of control. Okay. So you're making it for yourself, but you're also, you know, cause given that it's thematic, right? It is, it is kind of, there is some kind of message in there. Maybe it's a personal message, but. But I think, yeah, I mean that, and it is, it's, it's really ultimately like I'm trying to speak about my own perspective. I know mm. that there's going to be a wide range of perspectives here, which may not agree, but that's not the point. I'm stating how I view this. This mm. is my personal reflection on this and what I want an audience to get out of this is going you know did you enjoy the music did you not enjoy the music yeah <laughs> you know that's really all that matters in the end did you find something meaningful in there great if not that's fine too it's not about trying to control a message necessarily mm -hmm. that makes sense um, let's kind of wrap up by talking about recommendations um, and I want to do this two ways, uh, starting with book recommendations and then uh, musicians, composers, uh, even, you know, Philharmonics that are producing really great albums. Um, you know, I, I really enjoyed um, 
Florence, the Florence Price uh, uh, recording that was done by, I think the is it Pittsburgh Philharmonic or Philadelphia. In any case, there's a lot of great uh, just orchestras that are producing great albums too. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to give you an opportunity to recommend some music for people to listen to stuff that's happening now that is exciting. But let's start with books. Uh, what are two or three books you might recommend to the audience? Well, I'm a real sucker for pulp science fiction, if you haven't figured that out by now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, fantasy as well. Uh, if you have not read the Mistborn trilogy by Brandon Sanderson, mm. it's really enjoyable, actually. just it's you know It's not the deepest stories in the planet, but they are very fun. And I think he creates a really fascinating world, really good world building in this um, trilogy. So it's Mistborn is the first book, uh, The Well of Souls and uh, Hero of the Ages is the trilogy. And I do think people need to pick a pulp genre to like become religious acolytes of, because I think it's important for just regular reading to have something fun, you know, because mm-hmm. sometimes some of us can get trapped in either reading uh, heavy nonfiction books or we pick up a novel that won an award and it's complicated literary fiction. And so it takes you a long time, but we all need just like something fun, light and easy for me. It's uh, L.A. Noir. Like I love Raymond Chandler. I love uh, crime fiction like that. And I can just I can just pick up one of those and a Saturday afternoon is gone before I know it. And I, I that's that's something that I think more people need to have is kind of that fun, light reading um, that just is a regular part of their lives. Now, if you want the opposite of that, something Great. that's maybe a little deeper, um, Margaret Atwood's Oryx and Crake, I cannot recommend enough. I think mm-hmm. it's, you know, you know, we know Margaret Atwood, I think primarily, you know, from uh, The Handmaid's Tale, of course, but uh, uh, Oryx and Crake is such such a well-done novel. And um, it's the first part of a trilogy, but but I would just read that one book, honestly. It's just, it's such a strong novel. It's amazing how prolific she is with all she's written. I'm um, watching and reading um, Alias Grace, which uh, came out as a Netflix series, which is another one of hers. Um, and it's just, she is just so prolific. And everything is, at least everything that I've read is such a, a high level. You could really spend a lot of time with her. I mean, if you spend a lot of time with her, it's a pretty dark world, but you know, you can, <laughs> you can spend a lot of time with her and she'll have plenty for you. So let's jump to uh, uh, music that you'd recommend. Who are some composers, musicians that you're really enjoying right now? So I've become a huge fan of, um, it's funny to say this because I remember him when he was a freshman and I was a senior at USC, but uh, composer Andrew Norman, who uh, is on faculty at Juilliard, is just been lighting up uh, the world for about the past uh, decade or so. Um, He uh, composed a really large symphonic work called play it's in three movements and it is just one of the best like well done orchestrated and compositions i i can think of in modern time it is just i cannot sing the praises of this piece enough it is challenging initially it is you know virtuosic to a huge degree but it comes together over the course of these three movements in such a surprising and satisfying way that it's like it's like just this cathartic experience. And so I strongly encourage if you have never heard play by Andrew Norman, you got to check it out. Mm-hmm. Um, what what is, what is your take on uh, this kind of burgeoning movement called uh, classical crossover where it's kind of like EDM and kind of light ambient music mixed with classical music? Is that from your kind of particular position, how do you view that uh, genre that's growing? 
it, it kind of feels like a natural outgrowth of a lot of the other kind of crossovers that have happened in classical music. It seems that every popular music genre at some point or another starts to get crossed over into classical music. And it's a very simple reason because these are the musics that we as children, we as teens listened to before mm. we then became students of classical music. You know, as I said, I listened to a lot of jazz when I was young. There are many composers today who grew up listening to EDM. They grew up, you know, studying uh, Aphex Twin, and now they're putting that into their own music and making that part of it. So I, I just think it's a pretty natural outgrowth more than anything. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's close by talking about what you're up to next. Um, so Melt just premiered. Is there another project already in the works? I'm taking a little bit of time at the moment, actually. Okay, good. I had, uh, I had a lot of big pieces for a while there. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, COVID certainly changed a lot of my own perspective on what it is that I want to do as a composer moving forward. Um, I, there's some things I still want to do with Melt um, in terms of uh, cleaning up the score a couple places, getting a recording made of it. But I'm looking at some various different directions that I'm taking my music. And so there, there are ideas, irons in the fire, if you will. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, I appreciate you doing this with me. This is a lot of fun. And thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's Best, or by leaving us a rating and review. We'll see you next time.